You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. The very last edition of Jesus Make It Stop with Glenn Harper, war historian. Uh, it will be on at 10.30 this evening. It's already avail available online as a podcast because we wanted to share this weekend because uh, he's such a brilliant historian and has been walking us through the harrowing last few weeks of World War I, week by week. Today, of course, the last edition uh, as we have hit Armistice 100 years ago. Um, just an example, sort of uh, thing that he does. He's, he's great, Glenn Harper, and the full episode live on air at 10.30 tonight. People are fighting and dying up to the 11th hour of the 11th month in 1918. And uh, unfortunately, that's a fact that some of them are killed in the last few days of the war, and indeed some are killed on the last morning of the war. Glenn Harper later on this evening, and also coming up after, oopsie, Skeptical Thoughts with uh, Susie Wilds, Brian Cox, famous physicist and you could say famous documentary maker now. He's about as, as high profile as you get. He looks and sounds like he could be an extra on Coronation Street, that guy. Science is a, as a profession, if you're a research scientist, it's pretty much been wrong all the time. And then just now and again, it turns out that you're not wrong and you're delighted. <laughs> also on the theme of armistice, we are not forgetting the dissidents, those that chose not to fight, and many of them caught hell, including Archibald Baxter, who was given what they called field punishment number one on the Western Front by his own countrymen. They were trapped in this hideous, these hideous trenches, being blown to pieces for no reason, no reason at all. And to have have a bugle blowing and to have that as a uh, flags waving and to have that as something honourable. No, we've got to move on from that. That is Mark Scott, who will represent the dissidents especially. Archibald Baxter, that will be after 11 o'clock. Um, we'll be looking at the war poets as well. A pretty full-on armistice thing. What other day should we do it? OK, time for Skeptical Thoughts with Susie Wiles. Bullshit. Welcome back, Susie. <laughs> Susie Wallace. <laughs> Thank you. I almost toppled over an experiment and exploded everything that uses electricity because it was a liquid <laughs> experiment. I'll describe no further. We averted it, and I don't think we have to break class pull switch at this moment. <laughs> All right. Yeah, Brian Cox up later on. You'd be familiar with his carry-on, wouldn't you? I would, yeah. Not not personally, obviously. Hmm. Um who doesn't know Brian Cox, I guess. He's another one of the super-duper scientists who yeah. um, it feels like most people know who he is. Yeah. I like that. I love that, um, that bit about scientists being wrong all the time, researchers being wrong all the time, because it's a beautiful segue into our first story. Although he does end with people are delighted when they're right, and I'm not quite so sure these, uh, these two are right. Mm. Well, <laughs> you must know uh, and throughout history. I think it's one of the greatest... I suppose you could say it's, it's when science becomes a moral thing, when um, scientists are absolutely delighted to find out they're wrong mm. as well and mm. go, oh, great, I don't need to look down this avenue. This is an amazing discovery. I was wrong the whole time. Well done. Yeah. Scientists do do that. 
They do. I almost, yeah, I almost feel like we don't quite do enough of that. Like, you should really be trying to disprove your theory all the time mm. um, rather than collect as much evidence for it. You should also be looking for the things that would prove it yeah. wrong. Yeah, go out and try and wreck it. That's yeah. what Einstein did. Yeah. He thought up his uh, relativity stuff when he was quite a young man, 19, mm. he had the idea. Wow. And then spent the rest of his life trying to wreck it. And nobody could. <laughs> and people still can't today. It's pretty which impressive. Which is quite amazing. Mm. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's go to Harvard. Yes. Uh, so this is a kind of interesting story that's been doing around. Um, these two researchers from Harvard have published a paper in which they speculate that a mysterious space object that was uh, seen speeding past the sun last year um, is an alien spaceship. And so they spend their paper, it's got lots of uh, complicated maths and modelling in it, and it's basically looking sort of at its trajectory and how it could be moving the way it is. So it's something that's travelling very, very fast, and its trajectory suggests it's coming from outside our solar system, which is all very, very exciting. Um, it's also not the same shape as conventional asteroids and comets, and so they do lots of things around its mass to... Um, volume ratio and all this kind of stuff. And, it's and just varying not... luminosity too. Yeah. And um, and so this is basically, because it's not the same as normal stuff we see and because it seems to have come from outside our solar system, in their discussion section, which is the hand-waving section of a, of a paper, they basically uh, think it's an alien spaceship. Um, and so it's, a, it's essentially a kind of a flattened... Uh, like it's got a sort of long, flat shape. And so that reminds them of a um, sail. So they think it might be a solar-powered light sail. Right. Basically, from an alien spaceship. It would fit that. It would fit. But a lot of other a things do. Is this where we have to get out Mr Ockham's razor? Absolutely. <laughs> I'm reminded of the um, New Zealand sceptics... Um, their, their motto is basically, if you hear hoofbeats in the night, think horses, not zebras. <laughs> yeah. uh, I guess unless you live somewhere where zebras are the predominant, um, yeah. uh, you know, yes. Anyway, so uh, it's just really interesting because, of course, it's being, it's being as, you know, um, uh, advertised is the wrong word, it's being touted as Harvard researchers say. It's like, uh, yeah, they speculate wildly in the discussion of their paper. Nothing that they have said in their paper has any evidence for that. <laughs> um, there are lots of other things that could be... Um, I, why could, we could have some fun with this. Should we do a paper and suggest in the hand-wavy bit of the paper, <laughs> it's the Partridge family bus? <laughs> because it's about the same sort of dimensions. It's got windows. <laughs> um, it could be anything like that, sort of Indeed. long and rotating. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So. Oh, um, and uh, I guess um, yeah. I've sent you the link, so maybe you can even put it up, and then people can see it for themselves. Yeah. Um, the, the paper is available online. You can go and have a look at their hand wavy. How's life for these people who've written this paper in the cafe at Harvard? <laughs> the one on the third floor. Roast day's Wednesday, isn't it? I don't know whether they would even go to the cafe. Oh. Far too busy working. Oh, of course, they'd be like Harvard. going across the court on their Segway, <laughs> wouldn't they? Like all the good people at Google. Mm. Okay, now, fact-checking images of migrants. Yeah, this is a really great project. It's been launched um, with the International Fact-Checking Network, which sounds like an amazing network. So they look at misinformation and fake news that's being spread, and in this particular project, they're really interested about 
essentially fake news stories that are being spread about migrants. So one of the journalists behind the idea, who's um, Turkish, he went to Paris for a couple of weeks to do some fact-checking at a couple of French newspapers. Um, and what he was really interested in is the way that information about migrants is being spread around Europe, because obviously there's lots and lots of, you know, I mean, Germany opened their borders to um, lots of migrants. Uh, France has had problems for years in terms of um, racial, uh, you know, rioting and all sorts of things. And so, where you know, where is where is all this stuff being stoked from? I guess, and what's being used? And so, in just those two weeks, he identified 162 cases of fake news, uh, included things like tweets and Facebook posts and and statements made by politicians and all sorts of things. Oh. Um, and he could divide them into sort of nine categories, but the most common were basically that migrants. You know, are criminals, they carry out criminal acts, that they're claiming benefits, so, you know, they're getting stuff that they're not entitled to, or they would be getting more than, you know, people who are working. Um, or the idea of a migrant invasion, we saw this play out really well over the last week with, you know, the, the caravan of migrants who are, you know, going to soon uh, descend on the US. Um, and so what they, they well, there did... there was a caravan of migrants about to descend on the US, wasn't there? Yes, or it's on its way or something. But yeah. it's really interesting how it was like every news story on certain, you know, platforms until the elections and now it's kind of gone right, quite right. quiet. Yeah, 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 true. You know, you know, everyone's voting now. Um, anyway, so what they were really interested in was the images that were being used to push these stories and where have they come from. So they they looked at uh, so, sort of essentially the origins of some of these things. One of the things that they found is, uh, which is fairly obvious, is that fake news travels really quickly between countries, but that whatever the news is or the item is, it gets a adapted, evolves to be more useful depending on where it is. And so they did this with looking at some of the images. So for example, one of the videos that they found several times was of a man hitting some women. And so when that, uh, in the French media, that was claimed to be a migrant assaulting French nurses in a French hospital. Uh, in uh, Turkey, it was a Syrian man attacking um, a female doctor. Um, and in Spain, it was a Muslim attacking a nurse in a Spanish hospital. Right. So, you know, everyone takes the same image and then says, right, this is what it is for us to stoke, essentially, the fears that people have. So in Spain, it was about Muslims. Uh, in Turkey, it's about Syrians. You know, right. Um, and it turned out it actually had come from Russia, and it was basically a man in a Russian hospital hitting some nurses. So whether right. he was having some kind of mental episode, and um, but, you know, it wasn't any of the things that was being used to... Um, uh, used to use to stoke and there was another really interesting one which was basically a montage of 16 supposedly 16 european women who'd been raped and assaulted by migrants in europe um, and they went back and tried to source each of the individual photos and it turns out they were basically all um, either from the uk or the us and they were victims of either domestic violence of police violence or basically random attacks in fact one of the pictures was of a man um, and a couple of them uh, were people who hadn't been attacked at all. They were wearing stage makeup, so they had basically been done up. Like, oh, um, no. Yeah. And yeah, so again, these are, you know, these were, this month, these pictures were like, okay, we need some pictures of some people who have been beaten up, preferably European women, uh, and then put them all together and then they, they spread. And again, they were they were slightly used in, you know, used in different ways in different countries to stoke the message that they wanted. Uh, it's so amazing. <clears throat> and I'm so glad that there are people who are kind of looking at this. Yeah. But I guess it's a reminder to all of us to really, when you see something... I mean, on social media, but also, I guess, now with what the US, well, the White House has just played with that video of the reporter. I mean, you just have to, 
question everything that you see. It's just such a shocker, isn't it? It's not only despicable, the thing that really gets me, because I can understand the, their motives of wanting mm. to of being that despicable, but it's almost pointless because <clears throat> you don't have to make these things up. There are awful, th there is mm. no shortage of awful things that have happened in Europe yeah. along these lines. It, you can just, uh, off the top of my head, Bataclan, Charlie Hebdo, uh, mm. the Jewish supermarket, Marseille truck, Danish sceptics in the pub. Um, shot, these are all vile, appalling things that mm. have happened. Why do you need to go and stoke it with <laughs> lies? Well, I guess you know you can you can release the story when you want to and when oh, you can yeah, keep I suppose it, so. you know, as a yeah, right. Yeah. We need this now, right? Kind of thing. We just need to up the temperature to <laughs> what whatever they're wanting to do. Yeah, yeah. good. Mm. All righty, um, and. Sleep drops raising, are they, uh, they have raised? Yeah, so $700,000? Yeah, so Sleep Drops uh, is a company that was started by a naturopath and she's developed a whole bunch of products that are basically um, to support people to sleep well. I mean, their website's hilarious. It's just like everything is just support this, support that, support this. Mm. Um, and so they've basically been using the equity crowdfunding site PledgeMe to essentially sell shares to um, so because they want to expand, so they they've set their their minimum at five hundred thousand, which they've met. So they've raised seven hundred thirty thousand, and they've got twenty two days to go, and they want to raise two million. So they're basically selling you know a portion of themselves so that they can uh, essentially break into Euro UK and um, oh, okay. or Europe and the US. Um, I just oh man, I'm really struggling with these things because they so you know when you look at what they so they have a whole bunch of them. Uh, and you can kind of match them max. They've got all these these wonderful little, you know, can I use them while I'm breastfeeding? Yes. Can I use them with all my other medicines? Yes. It's like, um, and so what they are is basically a little a little bottle of droplets. Um, they have one for like for everybody. They have one for men. They have one for uh, menopausal women. They have for babies and for kids. Um, the one for men is if you need support going to sleep, if you are waking in the night to pee. Uh, it's for prostate health and low libido. Um, apparently also great for traveling and shift work. Anyway, so what's inside these things? So they basically got a collection of herbs. I did actually look at them. They do actually have different sets of herbs because that would have been quite hilarious if it was the same one. <laughs> but so they, so they are at least different. Um, so the uh, collection of herbs plus also some homeopathic uh, remedies um, and some flower essences. And so that's just where are I lose all respect. Are there lady herbs and man herbs? <laughs> yeah, there are. There totally are. What are the lady herbs? <laughs> I've forgotten what the lady herbs are. There are some of them were in. So they had kava and passion fruit in um, in common. Uh, men got willow herb. Um, oh. What did the ladies get? I think the ladies might have got chamomile. I was hoping comfrey. Might sounds like a bloke. <laughs> uh, Uva ursi, whatever mm -hmm. that is, tribulus. Um, uh, and it, I just, oh, they've got homeopathics in, which means they've got nothing in. But obviously these have got something because they have actually got, like, dried... They've got homeopathic stuff plus some dried herb extracts. Dare we even consult the champions of woo, uh, homeopaths, and say... You should be upset with this because yeah. this can't actually because, be homeopathic because there's something, something in it. <laughs> yeah. They um, should be upset. The, the thing that upset me the most, I think, was that in her video, she, so in her pledge, uh, you know, her crowdfunding video, she talks about how they've done all these trials and stuff. And, of, and of course, there's 
so I went on the website, and there's basically nothing under research. It points you to some other, some things that people say, chamomile is good for this and stuff. There's nothing about their trials. So it made me wonder mm. whether she means a different thing by trials, because obviously if she's doing a trial, it needs to be registered, and she needs to have ethics permission. So does she have all these things? Uh, I'm just sort of, I'm curious about yeah. what her trial actually is. Anyway, so I'm, it's a bit sad to see... Uh, to see our woo spread to other countries. but Yeah. Um, yeah. Hmm. All right, so we'll take a short break and uh, we'll be returning with uh, a, a US Christian terrorist out of jail and yeah. completely unreformed, uh, probably no prizes for guessing what the person was involved in. All details after the break. You're tuned in. To Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Physicist and uh, now TV megastar uh, Brian Cox will be on later this hour, but uh, Susie Wilde's still with us. And last item for show and tell uh, this person's been let out of jail after 25 years for. Uh, so she was convicted of uh, the attempted murder of Dr. George Tiller and of a series of attacks on abortion clinics, including six fire bombings and two acid attacks. Oh. So she was a member, possibly still is a member, of the Army of God. Um, they are terrorists who believe that God has given them permission to murder abortion providers. Um, and so she shot Dr. Tiller in both arms outside his clinic in Kansas, mm -hmm. uh, something she described as the most, most righteous thing she had ever done. Mm. Um, she's apparently completely unrepentant and, uh, and it's thought that maybe she's even been advising members how to carry out attacks while she has been in prison. And now she's out. Um... And it's just, oh, man. Is Tiller dead? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so she didn't kill him, um, but he did uh, He did die. Um, in 2009, he was assassinated by another She was convicted of, of attempted murder of Tiller. Yeah, someone else, else actually got him. And it's really sad. Finished the job. So he, he was... He was a Republican and a devout Christian, but he still believed in women's, you know autonomy of their body and yeah. he, so he he had basically several women's health clinics where he did offer abortion services yep. um, and he was shot at point blank range in the head um, as he was carrying out his duties as, as an usher in church. Mm. So one of them went into church and and I guess that it's really, it's kind of interesting the environment that she's coming out of prison uh, to mm. in that um, there was a report out from the National Abortion Federation just uh, last year that basically said that attacks on abortion clinics and, and providers has intensified since Trump got in. Has so, Trump actually said anything about uh, abortion rights? Is he doing, or is it just this worry about the Supreme Court dude making it a majority? It wouldn't surprise me. I mean, there must be, he must have tweeted something about women not yeah, I don't know. about something. Um, I mean, so if if he hasn't said anything, at least you know it's the thing that appeals to a quite a lot of his very religious base. That's true. Um, well, always has really, hasn't yeah. it? That? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. what the National Abortion Federation found was that there'd been a doubling in the number of death and harm threats, um, and a, and uh, the trespassing in clinics had tripled. Right. Um, so that's just like between 2016 and 2017. So she's coming into this environment where, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, the war is still on. Mm. And as, an, as, a, as a soldier of the army of God, I can't imagine it's going to be long before um, she's stoking something else. Yeah. Um, it's awful. 
what I can't quite get my head around, and I would like a serious, really good conversation with um, uh, a Christian um, anti-abortionist uh, that is anti-abortionist because of their Christian values. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, the sanctity of life is one thing, but there are plenty of things where there's not a lot of sanctity of life in in the Bible and what God does, um, yeah. happy in um, help the Israelites kill all the women and children except for the virgins and, um, oh, by the rivers of Babylon, where that's Psalm 137. Right. Um, the last line of that, Boney M, don't sing. <laughs> uh, joy at the sight of or joy to those who dash the babies against the rocks. The, the You can see why that didn't make the cut. <laughs> didn't make the cut at the end. Look it up yourself, folks. Uh, uh, there's an abortion, sounds very much like an abortion, and number's five. Right. Go look that up. Um, just so many things don't mesh with the strident anti-abortion stuff, and there's not a lot in the Bible other than, you know, thou shalt not kill, but straight after that... The Israelites go and get <laughs> really... In fact, they kill half their own people um, straight after that. So I don't know what's going on there. I just want to know why. Yeah. It's a really, really big thing. Um, seriously want to know why with, with Christians. You can, you can make your arguments either way. Um, and But that's, I want to hear it from a Christian pers- perspective make sense. Mm. Mm. And it because of course it doesn't make sense, and and there's yeah there's even you know I mean they care about the unborn babies but not about the babies once they've popped out. No, <laughs> it no it's, yeah, a lot of it doesn't make sense. All right, um, abortion, right or wrong? Oh eight hundred eight double four seven four seven. We'll have a and friendly. And while chat. we're on it, yeah, it should be out of the Crimes Act in New Zealand. Let's oh, sort absolutely. that out yeah. next year. Yeah. Sort it out. That's really was a kind of an icky thing. It's like it's a, gross. A, a very apologetic for anything. Worse than that, isn't yeah. it? It's kind of like, ooh, yeah. but let's okay. Just let 2019 next year, let's just sort it out. Yeah, that would be good. And the uh, blasphemy law as well. Yes, please. Good one. <laughs> Susie Wiles, great to see you again. Thank you so much. My pleasure. You can look up, that's just off the um, top of my head because I remember some of the things that I need to. Yeah, numbers five. Go look it up. Go on. The Weekend Variety. Wireless. Did our universe have a beginning? Why is there a universe like this one? If time began at the Big Bang, then was there a time before time? The dulcet tones and an inflection of wonder from Brian Cox Probably our best-known science communicator. He's done so many great TV shows and will be familiar to many of you. And we managed to have him at the end of the line ahead of his world tour 2019. We'll have all the dates up. Professor Brian Cox, hello and thanks for being with us. Hello, it's a pleasure. Did you come top of your class in science? No, I, I don't think so, actually. It's a long time ago now, I can't remember, but... I mean, I was always, I always liked physics, so I, I was good at physics, but um, I wasn't so good at maths, actually, because I hadn't worked out yet that most people, me included, have to practice at maths. Right. And it didn't really come easy to me. So um, I was certainly not top of the class in maths. And after, so that said, 
you know, when there are younger people at the shows are listening, that you don't have to be a genius to be a scientist. You don't have to be Einstein. I mean, Einstein once famously said, actually, that when he was young, he was no Einstein. <laughs> so, and so I think that's important, that it's just it's something you have to be interested in and then, and then practice at. You, of course, did well enough, though, didn't you, to get through to Manchester University? Eventually, I did detour, though, because I, at 18, I, was, I joined a band that got a record deal. Yeah. So I didn't actually get to university till I was 23, which I think helped, because I really knew that I wanted to do it by the time I got there. Do you think a rounded, I'm calling it a rounded life, to have Catholic interests, interests all over the place, actually better informs your science, or is it irrelevant? Good question, because science is one of those things that the more practice at it you get, the better you get. But it's also an attitude. It's an attitude to life and to understanding nature. And I think it's one of the most important things science can deliver to everybody, actually. Everybody doesn't need to know how old the universe is or how many galaxies there are in the universe. But the way of thinking, the way of trying to just understand a little bit more about the world and not kid yourself into thinking you understand more than you do is very valuable actually the great scientist richard feynman he got a nobel prize who said that science is a satisfactory philosophy of ignorance and i think that's probably the most valuable thing i mean we we all have these kind of politicians around at the moment our certain countries have big problems with their politicians and you look at them and you think if only you had a philosophy of ignorance rather than thinking that you know everything then the world would be better. Yeah, it's often been stated far too many times, for me anyway, that science doesn't give you any oughts. It has no morals whatsoever. Well, it has the moral of don't say you know something when you don't. It is. It, that, that's a, it's, science is a very humble pursuit, I think. It's, it, you start off from a position of not knowing anything and you try your best to understand and that's it. It's a moral stance, that, not pretending that you know the answer. Mm. Hubris is not encouraged, but it happens, doesn't it? Scientists are not immune from the human fallibility of looking for the answer they want. No, but you get found out very quickly Mm. in in science because nature is the, the judge. So it doesn't matter who you are or how famous you are or how many titles you've got if if what you say disagrees with nature then you're wrong Mm. and and i think actually that's one of the problems that certain people have with science because there is a gold standard out there so you you can say what you want but nature doesn't care what you say but if you if you look carefully then you'll get you'll get the answer and most of the time you're wrong actually science as a profession if you're a research scientist is pretty much being wrong all the time And then just now and again, it turns out that you're not wrong and you're delighted. (laughs) And everything's provisional. Um, But some things are more solid than others, aren't they? It's not likely that the laws of thermodynamics are going to be overthrown. No. The very famous second law of thermodynamics, actually, is um, the idea that things get worse Mm. over time. It's, It's got a name. It's called entropy, but it doesn't matter what it's called. That's something that I think everybody thinks, well, it's probably the only law of nature we've got yeah. that, that we think will be absolutely true. So even, you know, these things that Einstein's theories and, and quantum theory and all these things, that we, we know that they're, they're not absolutely right. They're models that describe the way the universe works. We, we know, for example, that 
we need a better theory in order to describe what happened at the origin of the universe mm. or what happens at the centre of a black hole. Do you get to do the science that you want to do, given the amount of TV shows and things that you've done? And no, you know, you can't have everything, can you, in, in life? And, and I was, um, you know, for many years, I just did my research, and I actually didn't want to do anything else. I, did, I didn't even want to teach. I didn't want to do anything. I just wanted to do my research, and I did that for a long time. And then I accidentally sort of fell into doing uh, bits of television. Just because television companies were interviewing me because I was at CERN when we were building the Large Hadron Collider mm. and people were interested. That's opened up a wonderful world. Uh, I've, you know, I've learned a lot about much more science than I would otherwise have done. But at the same time, you have less time to do research. But I would say that most people who get to my age in science end up not being able to do as much research as they want because they always end up with some other job, whether it's been the, the dean of something or the head of the department or something like that. So, you know, my reason for not being able to do as much research is, you know, at least that I get to come to New Zealand and do live shows and talk about physics. So I'm not going to complain that much. And I suppose you get a kick out of it. And it's great to have a science communicator out there. Did you do inadvertent training for your television presenting by just trying to explain stuff to, I don't know, your bandmates or friends at a restaurant, at the pub? Not really. I mean, tele television is, uh, is practice like anything else. I was just lucky that I got interviewed a lot. You know, anybody who teaches um, knows that it's, it's difficult, and the more that you do it, the more practice you get, the better you get at it. But, and also explaining things is the best route to understanding them. So going back to what we said before about humility, yeah. I mean, it's quite easy sometimes when you're a professional research scientist to understand a little bit of science and not really think much about anything else. And actually what I find now is that when I'm on you know, shows like this, I could get asked anything. So you have, to, you have to, you really begin to understand much more than you used to. Because every time I get asked something that I don't know, then I go and try and find out later after i've said on radio that i don't know the answer then i go and try and find out what the answer is a lot of people's favorite science communicator was carl sagan god he was good yeah. but you'd be well aware of the kind of backlash he received i don't know if it was envy or if there were good arguments do you suffer this as well no I, he had a terrible time he, he was in a different age right he was in the 70s and 80s he didn't get into very famously into the national academy of sciences in the u.s and his science would have allowed him in. And, but also, you know, the value that he had to science, the number of, the amount of science that's been done by the scientists he inspired. Now, I mean, me included, right? He inspired me to go into science and thousands of others. So his impact has been immense. But it, in those days, it was really frowned upon. It's less so now, I think. I mean, there's obviously, you know, you'll get a few voices that think that you're, you should just get down and do some research or more teaching or or perhaps people think you're taking some of the glory you know you what why would you be a famous scientist i want to be a famous scientist as well but i think actually people have realized that we we are in a world now where we're fighting for support and public support we're fighting for the best students we're fighting for young people to go into science we're fighting for resources taxpayers money to do our science and so uh, I think it's understood now that it's someone, some, some scientists have to do this. Not all of them want to, but some of them do. And I think that's understood now.
And if you're good at it, I think you're good at it. Have you seen Philomena uh, Kunk and Barry Shit Peas take the piss? I know her very well, actually. <laughs> so, yeah, I enjoy it massively. There was this programme called Wonderful Life. It was like this holiday thing where Mark Owen, out of Take That, goes round the world and looks at things like he's on an album cover or one of his unpopular solo projects. And sure enough, he starts saying all this moody stuff. What is it that makes something alive? What is life? When my friend Paul went to Thailand, he had a bad pill and ended up crying and trying to run into the sea for three weeks. And this is just like that. It's like he's had a bad pill. Sounding all stoned and depressed. The, the essence of you is just really something that emerges from an inanimate bag of stuff. The stuff he says gets madder and madder until you're like, someone's got to step in and get this bloke some help. I did a sketch with her for the BBC, actually, which is very funny, and she is, she is extremely funny. I spoke to expert science man and former D-Ream keyboardist, Dr Brian Cox. How will the world end? Well, the sun will run out of fuel in about four billion years or so, and actually before that, it will begin to, to swell up, expand, and so we think the Earth will get incinerated. Do you think we might be able to do something about it? Stop it being incinerated? Yeah, stop it being incinerated. Oh, the, the sun burning the Earth. Can't we put it out with a big hose or something? It's an inevitable consequence of the laws of nature. You're, you're pleased with that, are you? You're happy with that? You can live with that? Isn't it good? Yeah. <laughs> so you get that. It's a screen white, right? You get that in, in New Zealand. Yeah, everything's on the net, Brian. Oh, you get it on there. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I want to ask you some things that I've got no idea about, and it's not to do with neutron stars or black holes. Yeah. With a Large Hadron Collider, you turn it on. What happens? How do you turn it on? Does it make a noise? Do you all have to wear a hard hat? Hide under the desk. What happens, Brian? Well, not much. There's a little bottle of hydrogen that just sits there and you just turn it on and some hydrogen comes out and then you accelerate the hydrogen around the big ring and smash a few protons together. We don't hear anything, but it's underground, you know, and there's nobody in there when it's on. Oh. <laughs> so you don't, you don't sit there watching it. You're well out of the way. They haven't put a sacrificial ferret down there just to see what might happen. No, well, because it's, it's, there's quite a bit of radiation when you're whizzing protons around in a circle at 99.999999% the speed of light yeah. and then smashing them into each other. So they go around the 11,000 times a second. They're moving pretty quick. So you just stay out of the way, <laughs> sensibly. There is a great public interest in science. Even the real hard science. I fell off my chair when I found online the arch satirist Chris Morris. He does no interviews, practically, and there he is, turning up at the Large Hadron Collider, having a chat with you, and put it online. We're in the Atlas control room with Chris Morris, who I've grown up seeing on TV and radio and being scared of <laughs> at, some, at some level. How many particles is it, different kinds of particles, is it designed to detect? Well, there are quite a lot, actually, because it's not fundamental particles. It's things like protons and neutrons and... OK, and what is, then... A fundamental particle. At the moment, we something that we can see has no internal structure at the moment. What was going on there? Well, he was interested, <laughs> as, as you said. And you find that, actually, with a lot of comedians that I know. You've got to be smart to be a comedian. 
it's just one of those things. It's, it's, it's arguably the most sophisticated and complex machine we've ever built as a civilization. Mm. And a wonderful thing about it is it's built to acquire knowledge and nothing else. So it's not built to make better missiles or whatever. It's built to just find out how the universe exists. And I think that captures people's imagination. It's, it's a beautiful thing for the world to have built. The LHC can recreate the conditions that were present less than a billionth of a second after the universe began. Yeah. Uh, and it can do it many millions of times a second. Now, the big questions, the most tantalising ones on the horizon to be solved, that may see a shift along the lines of Newton or Einstein or, or quantum mechanics. These were massive earthquakes in science. Are there any on yeah. the horizon? Just in terms of discoveries, um, we're trying very hard now to look for life on Mars. So that's answering the question, are we alone in the universe? Mm. So that discovery would be a big one. In terms of our understanding of the universe, we want to know what makes the universe accelerate in its expansion. So the whole universe is ex expanding and expanding faster and faster. And we don't understand why that is at all. So that's mm. one of the frontiers of our knowledge. There are the string theorists. Oh, if you've missed a meeting, string theory listeners, it's just the most minute thing you could ever um, imagine and then minute it from there and it's little strings vibrating make up everything. But when the string theorists are asked, what are the strings made of? They say, shut up and calculate. What do you well, reckon? Well, the first thing to say is that string theory is one of the theories that we have to extend general relativity and quantum mechanics, which are our two foundational theories at the moment. Yeah. And uh, it might not be the right one. So that's the first thing to say. But the second thing, that shut up and calculate is an interesting idea. It's, it's, it almost goes to a philosophical question, which is, are our theories just models that allow us to calculate the way that nature behaves? Mm. Or are they, in some sense, describing reality? Is, is it really the case there's a fabric of the universe space-time, which is what Einstein's theory describes, and the curving of the fabric of the universe is responsible for gravity, or is that just a model that allows us to make calculations, which are wonderful calculations? They, you know, we've been able to calculate how black holes collide, and we've seen that in observatories that measure the ripples in the fabric of the universe, right? But whether that's real or not, or whether it's just a model, is a good question. And some physicists don't care. My job is to calculate the outcome of experiments or the outcome of observations, and that's all that we're doing. So we're not doing anything. We're not approaching some great truth. But other physicists think that those models are so beautiful and so accurate that they describe the universe as it really is. Yeah. All right. But it, it gets, we get philosophical very quickly, don't we, about the nature of reality. <laughs> yeah. What are the biggest misunderstandings regarding the cosmos that people you run into or, or the public at large from your perspective um, have misunderstandings about? I wouldn't call it a misunderstanding, but there's a, there's a perspective problem, I think. It's one of the things I, I want to talk about in the shows. It's like, why do we do this? Why do, why do we do astronomy and cosmology? And one of the things that astronomy tells us is that we're very, very small and very fragile, and the Earth is a very tiny, tiny, physically insignificant part of the universe. But yet, it's the only place that we know of where life exists, and certainly the only place we know of where there's a civilization. And so it might be that we're extremely rare, 
as well. So that, that perspective of fragility, but then also perhaps rarity and therefore value is important. I think that many people, as they go about their lives, sort of miss the bigger picture. It's an incredible thing for life over four billion years, essentially, um, began about 3.8 billion years ago on Earth, as far as we can tell, managed to get to this point where we can have a civilization that can begin to understand the universe. Richard Feynman called us atoms that contemplate atoms. Mm. Very few people, I think, appreciate that's a wonderful thing to be. Yeah, I've actually had an argument with a cosmologist, or a name, nameless. He was saying the universe is just so finely tuned for life. And I'm looking around and well, it seems finely tuned for deadly deep space and black holes. So it's an interesting debate that goes on in cosmology about how much weight to, to give to that statement. The first thing to say is that we have to look out on a universe which has laws that allow us to exist. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to look out on the universe. Mm. But it's true that we don't know whether the universe could have been any other way. And we don't know whether there are other parts of the universe that have different laws of nature. And then it wouldn't be surprising that there is, if there are many, many, perhaps an infinite number of different regions of the universe with all possible combinations of laws of nature, then it would not be surprising to us that we exist. I mean, our existence would be inevitable in that case. I personally think that these arguments about the universe being fine-tuned for life are kind of dangerous. I'm not sure you need to think in those terms. Can you suspend disbelief when watching sci-fi? Yeah, I love it. I mean, that's one of the reasons I'm a scientist. I couldn't tell the difference when I was growing up. You know, I just thought space was great. Yeah. <laughs> so it didn't matter whether it was Star Wars or Star Trek. I'm actually, I'm re-watching Space 1999 now with my nine-year-old, and it's brilliant. You remember Space 1999? Oh, yes. Quite dystopian, though, because we blew the moon out of Earth orbit <laughs> with a nuclear waste dump. It's quite. It's actually brilliant when you rewatch it. It's, it's really 2001 inspired kind of philosophical science yeah. fiction. Yeah. So I love it. Yeah, love yeah. Good one. If you could bring a scientist from the past to today to either say, "Thanks, look what you've done," or "Look what we've got here," who would you pick and why? Um, I, I'd love to meet Einstein. I think he's brilliant. Possibly the greatest scientist that ever lived. Or you could say Newton might have been as well. An unusual. But I think I'd like to bring Kepler. Kepler, for those people who don't know, discovered the laws of planetary motion, which really fed into Newton being able to build his theory of gravity. But there's a brilliant book that Kepler wrote called On the Six-Cornered Snowflake, where he got interested in the structure of snowflakes and why they're all different and why they're all the same. And, and he thought so carefully, and he started thinking about other things that are hexagonal, like beehives and pomegranate seeds and all sorts of things. And you can see this mind, this brilliant mind, that was just out of its time. You know, we're talking in the early 1600s. And he gets so close to thinking that there's some underlying structure to the water that makes the snowflakes. And maybe the structure of the snowflake is reflecting the underlying structure of water. And he's right. It's water molecules. We didn't know about atoms and molecules. So I, I think Kepler seems like someone who would be so excited and so overwhelmed to learn that there are all these worlds out there and see pictures of galaxies and I think he would really appreciate it. Yeah. So I'll go with uh, Johannes Kepler. Lovely. We have places in New Zealand named after Kepler. And, yeah. and as a Kepler fan myself, I have such admiration for a man who was deeply, deeply religious and it was his 
goal in life to prove that there was just such perfect order to the solar yeah. system and, as he thought, the universe. And he found out he was wrong. And he was the only person on the planet who knew he was wrong. And he said, it's wrong. Yeah. Good on The data told him yeah. that, that he couldn't have his platonic solids and all that kind of stuff. He, so, yeah, I, I think Kepler is a, is a brilliant man. And if you haven't read, you can get it on. It's just it's freely available. It's, it's on Kindle and things like that. You know, oh. you can download it. But the, the six, on the six-cornered snowflake, it's fantastic. It's brilliant piece of writing. Brian Cox, we look forward to seeing you in 2019, part of the world tour. We've got the link for tickets. Get in early. It's bound to sell out. That's on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. Brian, thanks heaps for your time and all best with whatever you're doing. Thank you very much. Been a pleasure. The stuff he says gets madder and madder until you're like, someone's got to step in and get this bloke some help. It's not right. It's just exploitation filming him like this. The chicken is radiating disorder out into the wider universe. And it's sad, but he really wants you to understand what he's on about. Because he doesn't know it's pointless. Weekend Variety Wireless. Three minutes away from 10 o'clock. You enjoyed Brian Cox. Where can you go and see him? Uh, he'll be uh, doing a gig in Auckland as part of his world tour. And we've got the direct link to the gig, the gig is, the gigs, on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. It's the easiest thing to do. Or you can just use Google uh, and tickets are selling fast. I think the gigs aren't, uh, his shows aren't until well into next year. So you've got plenty of time and I'll remind you closer to the date. We may even be able to wheel Brian Cox out again a little closer because it's at least six months away, I think. But they're getting in early, and so are ticket buyers. All right, so that's what you do. In the next hour, we will be featuring the very last episode of Jesus Make It Stop. Uh, Glenn Harper has been magnificent and magnificently generous with his time and his extraordinary knowledge in walking us through the last weeks of World War One today the 100th anniversary of Armistice. And the Germans, the German army paraded somewhat like a victory parade after this. Glenn, is, if you haven't <coughs> listened, I entreat you to have a listen to his shows, but it's describing how defeated the Germans really were. But there was this imagery that they weren't defeated at all, and this sat in Hitler's guts like a broken bottle. It's things like this that helped that happen when they marched back into Berlin. They actually are welcomed back by their own government who treats them as if they're a victorious army and actually allows them to have a victory parade in November 1918 of all things. And where their chancellor actually tells them welcome back you who return undefeated from the field of battle. So uh, little wonder that the hostility is reserved for those who actually made the peace and signed the armistice and all those left-wing elements that were blamed for uh, Germany's defeat. The Grim Affair its final throw tonight. That'll be around about in half an hour because Dibvig will be first cab off the rank after news sport and weather at 10 o'clock. It's coming to you in about 28 seconds time. Oh, we've also got some other um, World War One themed stuff. The War Poets with Harry Ricketts. He's really good on this subject. He knows a thing or two about them. Siegfried Sassoon, Wilfred Owen, who was killed in the last week of the war. And we don't forget the dissidents, the conscientious objectors, for non-religious reasons, in this case, Archibald Baxter, the father of James K. Baxter, who caught hell on the front from his own countrymen.